is Len Hughes, the voice of rock. Hey everybody, this is Pat Torpy from Mr. Big. And you're listening to Music Mania. I want you to want me. The dream police. Your mama's alright. Your daddy's alright. But just seem a little bit weak. Scream for me, Brazil! Scream for me, Brazil! So let's rock and roll all night! Come on, yeah! In the words of ACDC, we roll tonight to the guitar bite. And for those about to rock, I salute you. You are now listening to the Music Mania Podcast, brought to you by CD Warehouse in Gladstone, the number one hard rock podcast in the Midwest, featuring hard-hitting interviews with rock's living legends. And now, here is your host, Clint Schweitzer. Well, it's summertime, and the living is anything but easy right here on the Music Mania Podcast as we continue to launch into the summer months here on the podcast. So much uh, coming up for us. It's been a great summer so far. Some big interviews still yet to come, some big concerts still on the horizon, and I hope that you guys are able to get out, enjoy some live music, certainly enjoy your friends, some live beverages, just getting out and enjoying what the summer is. It's the symbolic hope that anything is possible, and that is the way we live right here on the Music Mania Podcast. Certainly hope you will hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or Spotify, uh, any way you choose to take in the show. Actually, just heard we're, rec- we're now a part of iHeartRadio. I submitted us to that like a year ago and just found out we're a part of iHeartRadio as well. So any way you choose to take in the show, we always appreciate the feedback. And we have two huge guests once again this week because our shows have become almost too big for just one guest, at least lately. Um, we're going to be talking to two amazing guests. We're going to be talking in our first segment with Neil Ratner. He is the rock doc. Yes, he is a former tour manager for Pink Floyd and por- for also former personal physician for Michael Jackson. Yes, from 1994 to 2002, he was Michael's personal physician and friend. We're going to talk to him about all things Michael Jackson, about growing up and uh, his career in the music business before he decided to become a doctor. What a story it is. He has a book out. It is called The Rock Doc. You can uh, check out more information at neilratnerrockdoc.com. Now, Neil has definitely enjoyed an interesting story. Uh, His life is an unbelievable tale in and of itself, so we're going to get into all that with him and more just about being around Michael Jackson, what it was like, maybe some of the uh, medical procedures and surgeries, just kind of how it all went down, how it works, how Michael was as a person and as a friend. That is going to be tremendous uh, and we're going to be giving away a copy of the book on our Facebook page. So head over there, facebook.com slash Podcast, and uh, you can check in on how to get a copy of that book. If you want to buy it, neilratnerrockdoc.com. And also our second guest is going to be none other than Gary Peel. He is the guitarist from Boston. He's been in the band since 1986. He played guitar with Sammy Hagar from 1977 to 1984, really only disbanding because Sammy was joining Van Halen. We're going to talk to him about that, what it's been like being a part of Boston since 1986. He is the second longest tenured member of the group Boston that, by the way, are still out there rocking most summers. They're not out this summer. So because of that, he is able to take part in kind of a side project called Alliance. 
one of the best melodic hard rock bands you've probably never heard of, even though the band has collaborated together for nearly 30 years. This is a super group, so to speak, uh, doing it with Robert Berry, um, also with David Lauser, who also played with Sammy Hagar, uh, the drummer from Sammy Hagar. These guys have uh, gotten together. They've put out a new album, and it is tremendous. It is called Fire and Grace. You can get it right now. You can get it on Amazon. Um, you can go to GaryPeel.com and find out all the information about uh, how to get that, uh, what's going on with Boston, and uh, things like that. So two huge guests. We cannot wait to really delve into it with, with both of these guys. It was uh, tremendous to catch up with them both. And as for me, you know, typical stuff. Been busy this summer, a lot coming up. Going on vacation to Colorado here coming up. So uh, definitely taping some interviews beforehand so there's not a lull in the programming here on the Music Mania podcast. So got a lot of concerts coming up. Going to be some great stuff. I think uh, my next one is probably going to be Rob Zombie and Marilyn Manson. That's uh, coming up in July. I've got Alice Cooper and Hailstorm. Bush uh, and Live are going to be here. And I'm going to be going on the road to see Brian Adams and Billy Idol. That's going to be in Detroit. Busy summer ahead. I've got Kiss coming up in September. That's Labor Day weekend, uh, probably for the final time. So uh, a lot of good stuff coming from the Music Mania podcast. Your money stays and plays with us. But before we get to our interview with Neil Ratner, the rock doc, got to tell you about our sponsor, CD Warehouse in Gladstone, Missouri. Guys, they buy, sell, and trade CDs, DVDs, vinyl, and more. Do not let the vibe of the old school record store go by the wayside. Give them a visit off Antioch Road uh, in the Northland today. 22 years, CD Warehouse has been a staple. And if you go in and visit them, and there should be a discount, or it's on us. Mention Music Mania podcast, and they got your back. CD Warehouse in Gladstone, Missouri. Louder Than Life, America's premier three-day rock festival, comes to Louisville's Highly Festival Grounds at the KY Expo Center, September 27th through 29th, starring Guns N' Roses, Slipknot, Disturbed, Rob Zombie, Godsmack, Marilyn Manson, Breaking Benjamin, Chevelle, Hailstorm, and many more. Single day and weekend passes are available now at louderthanlifefestival.com. Experience it live. Neil, I'm doing so great, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us today. How is everything going? How are you, my friend? Oh, I'm good, man. The sun is shining. It's a beautiful day here. Uh, couldn't be better. Oh, that is wonderful. Neil, I tell you, this has just been incredible as I've been corresponding uh, with John Lappin, your, your tremendous publicist, um, as talking about this project that you've done. Um, of course, the book is The Rock Doc. Neil, you are The Rock Doc. You've lived one of the more fascinating lives that I've, uh, that I've ever seen. The book's been out since uh, January, I believe. Before we get into some of the specifics, just what's kind of the reception been like? Um, tremendous reviews on Amazon already, but what's kind of the reception been like just from what you've been hearing about this book? Well, generally speaking, anybody who uh, reads it or listens to it, because there's also an audio book, which I did, available on Amazon, uh, seems to really enjoy it. You know, people are really liking the stories, and more importantly, they seem to be getting some of the messages that I hoped people would get, you know, from the life lessons that I learned from all the things that have happened to me in my life. And I feel like um, through this, that basically, you know, the, the general message that I take from it is 
that, man, in this world, you can accomplish anything. And from the, the things that you've done and the, and the places you've been um, to starting off uh, working, you know, kind of in rock and roll production, um, to, to, to being a tour manager for like Emerson, Lake and Palmer, to working with Pink Floyd, to then one day you wanted to get your MD. So you, you did that. And then off you went into another career. Just what was... You know, as you take back that journey, I mean, is, is there one or the other that was maybe more gratifying for you? Is it just all kind of part of what makes your story unique? You know, they were each gratifying in their own way. And just getting back to your, your original point, yeah, people should not believe others when others say to them, you can't. <laughs> you know, you can if you believe you can. And, and through perseverance and determination and hard work, you know, you can accomplish most anything in life, so don't settle and, you know, follow your passion. And I grew up with two with two dreams, and one was to be a, a, actually a rock and roll drummer, and one was to be a doctor, and uh, I was able to accomplish both. I never got to be the drummer, of course, although I had a couple of interesting experiences as drummers throughout the years, but... Um, I did spend about uh, five, six years on the business end of the music business as a road manager, tour manager, and a producer. And uh, yeah, then I uh, followed the other dream of becoming a doctor. What was it like working with Pink Floyd? I mean, you're talking about in the early 70s, kind of the infant stages of really big rock and roll productions. I mean, a lot of people forget that, that that was sort of the genesis of it. Pink Floyd's production was unlike anyone, anything anyone had ever seen. Just kind of get into that, what that was like, uh, you know, working with them and the kind of the challenges of, of uh, creating some of those iconic images and, uh, and some of those iconic tours. Yeah, well, basically... So I, I got into the business end of the business, and uh, after I moved to London as the tour manager for Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, uh, I had this idea. I, I noticed that all of these big rock and roll bands were using multiple companies in order to accomplish these big tours. They would have a production company, a sound company, a lighting company, a trucking company. And don't forget, like, this was in the days before cell phones and computers. So it all got very complicated, as you can well imagine. My concept was, why can't we do it all in one? Why can't there just be one company, like a circus does? You know, a circus has all their own equipment, everything's under the big top, pack it up, bring it to the next city, and on and on you go. And so I had this concept of starting an all-in-one production company, and I got friendly with Peter Watt who was the um, chief sound technician for the Pink Floyd. It, it was actually quite strange. When I got to London, I got a phone call from an old girlfriend from college, and she happened to be married to Peter. She wanted me to meet him. He and I became friendly, and when I told him about this concept, he thought it was fabulous, and he helped me put it together. He knew some technical people uh, who had the right kind of ideas, the right kind of equipment, and so we created this company. And, and again, the idea was all-in-one production, and I went to different groups, and I said, look, I'll create whatever kind of production you want uh, as long as uh, we have a relationship for a long enough period of time that, that I can make some money back. And so I had started this large production company, and actually prior to the Dark Side of the Moon tour, um, 
I had gone back to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, and they were actually one of the first with this huge production concept, because I went to them and I said, you know, what do you want to do? I'll do the production for it. They said, and Greg Lake said to me, um, you know, we play in all of these large, overgrown places. They're impersonal. They're different every night. Let's create our own theater and take the theater with us. Yeah. And we'll have all our sound and lights and clothes, and we'll have full theatrical curtaining. Uh, and so I created that for them, and I think it was the first time that was ever done. <laughs> and it was 60 foot by 30 foot by 30 foot high. And we had to, you know, with a proscenium arch, full curtaining, all our sound and light stuff and clothes, and nobody had ever done this before. And, and we almost bit off more than we could chew. It was so large, we wanted to rehearse it. And we didn't know where to set it up. And the only place big enough for us was the Shepherd and Film Studios outside of London. And so here we were with this massive production that nobody had ever done before. And uh, we actually managed to accomplish it. Actually, there's a film out. You can see it on YouTube somewhere about that tour. But there was like a bummer. At any rate, I'm on that tour. And I got a call from Peter. And he tells me that the Pink Floyd have almost completed an album called The Dark Side of the Moon. It's a concept album. And that they had gone on a short English tour to try and play the album on the tour even before it was released. But they didn't have enough equipment. It didn't go well. And so he had decided that the only way they could do this properly is if the two of us combined forces and my company combined with the Pink Floyd so that they could do, you know, Peter said to me, it's going to be the biggest tour ever when we hit the state. I wanted to do quadraphonic sound, Arthur Max, our lighting and production designer, wants to be the first to use digital lighting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I was shocked because the Floyd had never taken an outside company before. But, uh, of course, I said yes. And I joined, my company joined the tour in March of 73, right when the Dark Side of the Moon album came out. Wow. And this, of course, laid the groundwork for many of the great rock tours you saw later on in the 70s, of course. And uh, not only did you do that, I mean, you worked with groups like Edgar Winter. We talked about Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, T-Rex, among others. Um, but you wind up you wind up finishing college, you learn Spanish, and you fit, spent four years at medical school in Mexico uh, just kind of talk about that stage of your life, uh, kind of leaving rock and roll, becoming an MD, going down to Mexico to do it, learning Spanish, and kind of going about it that way. Yeah, so, like I said, I had two dreams in life. And uh, after the Dark Side of the Moon tour, Peter and I kept the combined equipment together for a while because Floyd wasn't touring. And, and we did T-Rex, Three Dark Night, a couple of other tours. The rock and roll lifestyle ended up putting me in the hospital with kidney stones. <laughs> and it was late, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it was late one night, and uh, I'm uncomfortable, and I'm in bed, but I'm on pain, medication, whatever, and a movie comes on about uh, American medical students who become residents and country doctors, and, and I just saw this movie, and I had this like epiphany and said, you know what, I'm done. I haven't become the drummer, never will at this point, and I really have this dream of being a doctor. I'm going to sell the business, and I'm going to go back to school. Now, I had walked out of college many years before, so I had to go back to college first. Not so easy. 
you know, colleges didn't really think that I was serious, but I finally got accepted at Hofstra University in Long Island, worked very hard, had good grades, but of course I was not your average applicant to medical schools. The medical schools were hard enough to get into to begin with, and then when they looked at somebody like myself, and back in those days, they weren't really looking for well-rounded individuals. You know, they felt that the smartest guys would become the best doctors. I think that's changed a little bit. <laughs> and yeah. they realized more well-rounded individuals would be better. But at any rate, um, too few spots for too many applicants, but there were foreign schools, uh, a few around the world, that were aware of the problem in America. And they catered their programs to accept the overflow of American students. I looked to see which one would suit me best, and since I had a little bit of Spanish from high school and, and the early years in college, I figured that should be the place that I went. And they had a really good rate of getting people back into the American medical system. So that's how Mexico happened. But it was in Spanish, and I didn't know Spanish well enough to go at that point, so I had to spend three months in a language school to learn enough Spanish to uh, be able to go down there. Went down there, spent four years in medical school in Mexico. Then there was the way to get back into the American system was you had to work in a hospital, uh, a prescribed hospital that had a program for American-born foreign medical students. And once you did a year of unpaid internship, you were allowed to take the uh, licensing exams. And once you passed them, you were the same as an American-trained uh, medical student. So then I thought I wanted to be a surgeon. I did two years of surgical residency and then realized that wasn't for me. And had talked a lot to the guys at the other end of the table, the anesthesiologist, and uh, it seemed like an interesting possibility. And so I switched over to anesthesiology and completed an anesthesia residency. See, and then finally, about 10 years after I left the music business, I was ready to go into practice. Well, of course, um, you know, you go on to famously uh, befriend and become the personal physician of, of Michael Jackson from 1994 to 2002. Um, you periodically went on tour with Michael, spent time at Neverland. Um, just talk about kind of how that came about. Uh, obviously, you get, you get done with medical school. You're an anesthesiologist, licensed. And how how does it come about that you meet Michael and kind of go forth with this friendship and becoming his personal physician? So uh, I I'm finishing up my anesthesia residency, and I'm really not sure what I want to do beyond that because I spent so many years in training in hospitals. And when I looked at the field of anesthesiology, I mean most people were in hospital-based groups. They're on call every couple of nights, and they're doing all kinds of operations. And that really didn't interest me at all. I had an interest in, in a different type of surgery. I found it fascinating, the kind of surgery where uh, the patient was neither asleep nor awake. It was something called conscious sedation. Uh, and it was done with a combination of local and local anesthetic and a little bit of general, maybe, here and there. Um, and, and so when I looked around, I noticed that there were doctors who definitely were doing small procedures in their offices, but to a very limited extent. And the reason being, anesthesiologists at that point did not want to devote themselves full-time to office-based surgery. And, and really because the drugs and monitors that were available 
we're really geared towards hospital-based anesthesia, not office-based anesthesia. But having been in the rock and roll business and understanding um, drugs a little bit better maybe than my colleagues did, so to speak, I felt that this was this was something that I could handle and this was something that I could do. So uh, I decided to actually create that business myself, maybe one or two other anesthesiologists took the lead. And, and cosmetic surgery, reconstructive surgery, those were the guys that we felt were best to first approach because they had the kind of procedures that could be done under the type of anesthesia I explained, plus they had the kind of patients that didn't like hospitals anyway, right. and they had the money to create good operating rooms and recovery rooms so we could all feel safe there. And so I, uh, I took the leap and I did that. Eight years later, uh, I got a call from uh, the surgeon that, that I was director of anesthesia at his operating room, as well as a few others, but this was the guy I started with. And, uh, you know, he told me that uh, we had a celebrity, which was not unusual. Then he played a little game, and then he told me it was Michael. <laughs> and sure enough, 20 minutes later, I was speaking to him on the phone, and the next day we did a little procedure. And uh, we hit it off really quickly. You know, I was a very different kind of doctor than the doctors that Michael had met previously because, you know, I was a real music kind of guy. And I looked different. You know, I had a ponytail and an earring back in the 90s. Still do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we were able to relate on a few different levels. And, um, you know, uh, after the procedure, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but Michael's MO was if he liked you and he wanted to become friendly with you, he would make sure he had your phone number and then he would call you at like some ungodly hour, three, four, five o'clock in the morning. That's how he became your friend. And uh, over the course of the next year and lots of late night phone calls and a couple of times when he was in New York, we became really friendly. And then the relationship developed from there and, and lasted for a good eight years. Yeah, for, for eight years. I mean, and just kind of talk about that. I mean, you've gone on record as saying that knowing Michael as well as you did, that he's not the person that many people, you know, perceive him to be, that, uh, that, that you were able to kind of establish a relationship with him and that, you know, that, you know, you saw things and sides of him that, that no one got to see. Just kind of talk about that because your role as his physician is one thing, but it seems like to me that you took on also a role as a friend and that you were kind of, um, you know, partial to things that, that maybe some of the, the rest of the public or people close to him weren't. Just kind of what was that relationship like? What, what was it like with him on yeah, a day-to-day basis? You know, it was a doctor-patient relationship, but more than that, it was, it was a friend relationship. Um, you know, Michael and I uh, were able to talk about anything and became real friends, you know. What people don't really know about him is that you know, out of the glare of uh, photographers and and stage lights, you know, Michael was just a, a, a person like anybody else. Uh, was he unusual? Of course. Did he have some unusual behaviors and habits? Of course, but all the rock stars did, to be honest with you. But apart from that, he had a wonderful sense of humor. We laughed and joked a lot. He was a real practical joker, as a matter of fact. So we laughed and joked a lot. He was much more of a spiritual person than most people give him credit for. We would talk spiritual topics a lot. Uh, and he turned me on to a lot of tapes and books, and I turned 
and him onto tapes and books. We would, we would trade that kind of information, you know, self-help kinds of things, spiritual kinds of things. Um, he was a great friend. I mean, if he was your friend, he was your friend. Loyalty was very important to him. And I went through some really hard times in my life, and Michael was around for some of them, and he knew about them. And, you know, he was the first to, to come to my side and say, hey, I'm your friend. You're going to find out that people you think are your friends are not really your friends, and he was certainly right about that. But, you know, he stayed with me even when uh, it looked like he was going to be implicated in my problem. And, and, and he comforted me and said, don't worry about it. That's nothing. Right? You know, let's worry about you. You know, and, and just, you know, behavior like that, I don't think people really would expect Michael, you know, to be like that. And he was very inquisitive, you know, and we would have conversations about all kinds of interesting topics, you know, and, and he was, you know, again, in my company in private or with my wife or at Neverland when we were not around all kinds of craziness. He was just uh, fun and a, and a cool guy to be with. Well, in 2001, um, there was a documentary that came out that, uh, that basically was a, um, a, a it was a journalist from, from Britain, spent a lot of time with Michael. You were still his physician at this point. And it seems to me that Michael always had kind of some, maybe a bit of a, I don't know, for lack of a better term, denial or a mania about, about his procedures. And he, in that documentary, said that he'd only had two procedures ever done. Obviously, that's not accurate. I mean, how, how many times, how, how many procedures would you say that, that you did on, on Michael personally? You know, I don't know how many I did, you know, and I don't know that that's really important. Um, I, I get you that. Know, I, 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 well, no, I'll, I'll tell you what I will say, but what I will say is, and I discussed this in the book, I think, you know, by my way of thinking, in my medical opinion, Michael had a condition called body dysmorphic syndrome. And what that means is that people are never satisfied with the way they look. And they obsess about uh, they obsess about it to the point where they're constantly trying to to fix it to make it the way they want it to be. You know, now I, I truly believe that Michael had that. And unfortunately, we live in a world where every cosmetic surgeon thinks he's better than the next guy. And so, you know. It, it, it became a series of fixing what the last guy did to a certain extent, or, or little corrections, or little this, or little that. And, and you know, so that's what I'll say about yeah. it. How many times, you know, I, I can't say. I don't know. You know, and obviously he had doctors in New York, California, wherever. Uh, but, you know, I, I think it was part of a psychological problem that he had. Uh, and so he was kind of obsessed with it. You know, and, and of course, a lot had to do with his nose. Absolutely. That was a very, very good response there. I appreciate that. It was, uh, you know, good response to an awkward question. I'll tell you that. It's hard because I'm such a fan and, and everything that Michael did. And I'm just, it's, it's he's a fascinating figure and a mysterious figure. So to to have that kind of access to someone like you that, that really got in there and really knew him. And that's what's important is the, the personal relationship and um, obviously being a trusted physician as well. That speaks very highly of you and your practice and what uh, what you were all about. But I'll tell you what, Neil, the book is available. It's on your website. It's Neil uh, NeilRatnerRockDoc.com. But not only that, you 
are still very active. You're very active on social media. Um, you have uh, your own Facebook page uh, that's in, that's uh, kind of dedicated to this, and it's called um, Neil Ratner Rock Talk. Over 26,000 fans. What's it like for you kind of interacting with people on a daily basis? You share a lot of stories, a lot of pictures, a lot of things that are in the book. You kind of share those with the fans on Facebook. What's it like for you kind of interacting with people on this on these topics? Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> You know, what, what happened was when I decided to write the book and I got really serious about it, I, I wanted it to be more than a book. You know, I, I felt like I could go out there and I could be a speaker and I could be on social media and I could share a lot of stuff. And uh, so I put a team together uh, and I called upon actually the, the guy who hired me, Stuart Young, who hired me for Emerson Lake Obama 45 years ago. You know, he stayed in the music business managing people like uh, Billy Squire and Cindy Lauper and ACDC and, and now he has Varner and, and an Italian artist named Zupro and at any rate, he worked with a social media guy and the social media guy said geez, you don't value your early rock and roll experiences enough let's start a Facebook page and just hook into something and post every day and so I hooked into this day in rock kind of thing and I have been amazed at the response. Uh, I mean, obviously, music was always important to me, and as I say on my little radio show, you know, it's the soundtrack of our lives. But I never realized how posting these stories and doing some research and telling people about the music that they grew up with would be so important to people and would be so meaningful to people. And every day I'm blown away by the comments. I'm blown away by the comments. This will sound strange. But in many ways, I'm getting a lot more out of this than I did giving anesthesia to high society people in New York City. <laughs> That's the power of the internet right there. And you've got uh, also, of course, a, a very popular Instagram and a Twitter and a YouTube channel. So you, you know, it, this has become a brand at this point and that's really important that the book is only a part of that you have all these things and all these stories it's just wonderful and i know it's got to be really really fun just uh interacting with people and uh, i'm sure you get a lot of questions and a lot of a lot of off the wall questions probably even more off the wall than ones i'm asking you uh, every day so it's got to be interesting absolutely absolutely <laughs> particularly in relation to michael so don't worry about your questions they were shame. compared to many as you could well imagine <laughs> well you, you've lived in most again it's great it, it is i love interacting I love interacting, and I love uh, you know I love the fact that so many people find it so interesting. Well, you've lived a life that really is inspirational to someone like me, someone that's never been a nine to fiver, someone that's uh, always wanted to kind of live on the other side and, and and follow dreams and look you know just to find that 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 something in life that really gets you going. That's what you've done for for your entire life. It's a remarkable journey about rock and roll about personal relationships about an unexpected results uh and uh, prison sentences <laughs> this book is unbelievable Absolutely. um you can get it on amazon you can get it on your website um, which is uh, neil ratner rockdoc.com neil i could i could pick your brain for a lot longer but you know i think i'll just take to the facebook page and and and, and uh ask the rest of the questions that way because uh i know you like doing that man so i can't thank you enough this has been so exciting and so wonderful for us and um, we just look well, forward to it. Clint, I really appreciate the time. It was a terrific interview. Yes, great question. Oh, 
Thank you so much. Thank you so much. We'll be in touch, Neil. Can't wait uh, to give it. We're going to give away a copy of the book right here on this podcast. Some lucky fan's going to get this thing, and they're going to be in for a treat. So we can't thank you enough, and we'll uh, be in touch soon, my friend. Okay. Well, thank you, Clinton. Who knows? You know, maybe I'll be around Kansas City at some point because I do plan to come out and talk. So you, we'll see you in person one day. You be in touch with us about that. We'll make sure you get uh, the best barbecue you've ever had out here in Kansas City. We'll make sure of that, Neil, for sure. I'm ready for that. I'm ready for it. Sounds great, man. Absolutely. Thanks, thanks, my friend. Appreciate it. What a tremendous first guest it was. I could have talked to Neil Ratner uh, for a long time about some of those topics. We talked about Michael Jackson, talked about Pink Floyd being a tour manager. What made him quit the rock and roll business to become an anesthesiologist, open up his own practice, become the physician for Michael Jackson for eight years, and not only that, become his personal friend. What a great story it was. Go to Neil Ratner Rock Doc right now to get the book. I loved it. Uh, the book is a tremendous. Can't recommend it enough. The stories, you just heard some of them right there and uh, absolutely loved it. So without further ado, we got to bring on our second guest here on the Music Mania podcast. It is Boston guitarist, former Sammy Hagar guitarist, and he is talking about uh, his current side project, Alliance. They have just released a new album. It is guitarist Gary Peel. Welcome to the show. How's it going, my friend? It's going great. Uh, we're so happy that the record is out and people are listening to it and they seem to like it. Uh, absolutely, and it comes out uh, uh, June 14th, just a week away. A lot of excitement. Uh, whenever uh, John Lappin sent me this, he said, this is one of the most melodic hard rock albums you'll ever hear. And I love John. He's a tremendous publicist, one of the best we work with. And I tend to agree with him on this one. This is amazing stuff. I love Alliance. I love what you guys have done. You've got two videos out uh, for Raise Your Glass and also Uncertain, two lyric videos. Why was it important for you guys to get uh, those lyric videos out? kind of uh, ahead of this album. Uh, it was a good way for us to introduce ourselves to our, our fans again, because it's been a while. <laughs> and uh, the lyrics on this album are particularly positive, which we're very happy to do. You know, there's so much negativity in the world. We thought, you know, let's, let's look on the bright side of life, <laughs> as Monty Python would say. <laughs> and so, uh, again, we're... we're just glad to have these out there and wanted to include the lyrics too. Well, it's tremendous and it's uh, the sixth album from you guys. I think it's the first in about 11 years. Why now? Why was um, 2019 kind of the time to, to bring this back together and to get your sixth studio album out there? Why now? Yeah, uh, you're right. It's been a long time. Uh, over the years, we've tried to get together to uh, do some writing and, and we have a bit. We had some songs in the can, so to speak. Uh, but we never had quite enough to finish an album because I was so busy uh, working with Boston, of course. Uh, we toured every summer of uh, 2014, 15, 16, 17, which is more than uh, we ever did, even back in the 70s. <laughs> uh, and uh, Robert, of course, is busy. Uh, Dave Lauser was always busy doing stuff with Sammy or uh, other bands. But uh, one of the other bands that uh, Robert and Dave and I are in is called December People. And I don't know if he told you a little bit about that or not. Yep. Talked to him. Uh, but of course, it's you know traditional holiday songs, but in the styles of our favorite rock bands. And every show we do is a benefit for a local charity, usually a food bank. So as the name implies, we play during the holiday season because that's when people want to hear Christmas songs. So it's a lot of fun to do that because we get to play all different styles of music, you know, again, from all of our favorites, you know, ZZ Top, ACDC, Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, goes on and on and on. 
and but again, all the songs are the traditional Christmas songs that everybody has grown up with, so you can sing along right away with them. But uh, anyway, we were out in California doing that, and we said, hey, let's take some time after the December People gigs and finish this Alliance record, because we all had some more ideas that we wanted to, to put in. And that's just what we did. We spent about a week and finished up some songs and that we had ideas for. We actually wrote a song right on the spot. Actually, the, the title track, Fire and Grace, I had a guitar riff. Robert had some uh, words and a melody. Dave had a cool drum groove. We just started playing it in the studio, and it just happened. It was just like magic. It just appeared. And uh, that was it. Take one. Done. <laughs> hey, that, that makes it easy, right? When all of you guys are playing in different bands and doing all these projects and you come together, the chemistry must just be through the roof with you guys to, to still you know, want to revisit this project uh, time and time again. What is it about the chemistry between you guys? Because you all have very successful careers uh, in, in different facets. Of course, uh, Robert uh, just put out an, an album himself. Um, you're with Boston most summers, like you said. What, what is it about the chemistry with you guys? Like you said, hey, you, you just show up and, and, and there it is. I guess, uh, I guess that kind of sums it up right there, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, I'd have to say it's because we all trust each other, right? You know, so you leave your ego at the door. <laughs> And because you know that the other guys just want to make the song as good as it is. So uh, I'll come in with a song idea. But Dave, the drummer, he'll just say, oh, no, no, play the guitar like this. Play strum it this way. Hit this and make that major instead of minor or this and that. Whatever it is, I try it because I know he's got a good idea. And, you know, again, I got no ego. The drummer telling me how to play guitar. <laughs> that, that's completely fine with me because I know that it's going to turn out well because he's got some good idea. And that's, that's what we do. That's why it works. Well, you can pre-order the album right now. Uh, it's called Fire and Grace. You can get it on Amazon uh, through really any digital mediums, uh, Spotify and all the ones that you guys use. Um, also available as a physical album, too. And you know what, uh, Gary? That's kind of my jam. I still like the like to have the physical copy, so that's, that's the route I'm going to go. But this thing is it's coming up, and I know there's a lot of excitement for you guys. What about, I mean... As, as I know it's hard to, to schedule things, and especially in, in so many summers that you're out. Has there ever been some talks about maybe take, uh, doing some live shows together? I know you do the December people and, and things like that. What, what about live shows? Can we count on that at any point? I sure hope so, and we talked about that particularly for this summer because uh, I won't be out with Boston. Uh, we're taking uh, this summer off. Uh, I hope we go out next year, but this summer I'm available, and so it kind of depends on uh, Dave and Robert to see if they can make it and we can make that happen. And, yeah, we were talking that we would love to do some, like, big festivals or something where there are a lot of bands on the show, you know, 10, 20 bands or over a couple of days, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and those are usually the places where the audience comes knowing that they're going to hear some bands that they've never heard before because, you know, there's so many on, on the bill. So they may have recognized us from being in our other bands, but they say, hey, those are the guys from blah, 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 you know, and, and we're going to have some new music for them to listen to. So we'd love to do something like that. Absolutely. And, of course, it's crazy to think about this. You're actually the, the, the behind Tom. You're the second longest tenured member of Boston now. You've been in this thing for, for almost 35 years coming up here in 2020, not to date anyone. But, Gary, that's something else. Uh, talk about what that means to you and the fact that you talked about being as busy as ever from, from 14 to 17, four straight summers of big tours, playing with a lot of big bands. Um, it, it's been tremendous. Just talk about what this journey's been like for you as, as a member of Boston for uh, almost 35 years now. 
Yeah, well, I gotta say, it's a dream come true. When I first joined Sammy's band in 77, almost one of the first gigs we did was to open up the end of Boston's first tour for their first album. Yeah. Uh, our manager knew their manager, and but uh, they liked us, we liked them, and they said, hey, you guys should open the entire second tour for us, and that's just what we did. We traveled all around the country uh, for nine months playing everywhere, and uh, just had a great time with the guys, and that's how I got to know Tom Schultz, of course. So then in 85, when Sammy got the call from Van Halen, you know, he came to us and said, oh, I, I hate to say this, because you know, our band is so great, but I, you know, I got an offer I can't refuse. So uh, Tom Scholes from Boston heard about that and called me up and said, hey, I heard you're out of a gig. Why don't you come back here and help me finish the third stage album? There's one more song to be recorded. Would you come back and play on it? And that's all he was offering at first. And I said, hey, absolutely. I'd be glad to. I you know, love the band. So I, I flew directly from Farm Aid 1, our last gig with Sammy, uh, to Boston to start working with Tom. And a few weeks into it, uh, he said, gee, I think we work well together. Why don't you move back here? We'll finish the record. We'll do a tour and see what happens. And here I am. You know, smooth transition I, I, that that most musicians aren't afforded such a smooth transition from uh, oh, one out of work for a day you know what, how lucky can a guy get you know well that's an interesting but, time um to me because uh, you, you talked about sammy obviously um and you and you started off in 1977 so you were with sammy for uh, for eight years uh from musical chairs all the way to voa now voa of course i can't drive 55 mtv that was pretty much the height of, of sammy's solo career was that a, a hard thing? Obviously, like you said, no one was going to fault Sammy for, for taking the Van Halen gig. But as far as Sammy was on top of the world, you guys were churning out great albums. Was that, in your mind, an, an unfortunate time for that kind of end? Because you guys were just hitting your stride? Absolutely. And uh, again, Sammy was great to work with. Uh, you know, with Sammy, what you see is what you get. He's always in a good mood. Terrific musician. You know, great guy. You meet him in right away you're his best friend you know i mean that's just the way he is you know and so uh, again i had eight great years with him you know playing with him and all the other terrific uh, band members along the way and it, you know we started off and people didn't really know us that much you know we would back in 77 he had been in montrose of course but that wasn't a huge band so we played down south someplace you know alabama or whatever tennessee and and people say sammy hager isn't he one of the hager twins from hee haw <laughs> No, no, he was in the band Matros. <laughs> so it, it it took us a while to to you know build up the band and, and popularity, but every year got better. And he was our cheerleader. You know, he'd say next year's going to be even better, and it was. You know, every year we got more fans and sold more records and played bigger places. And yeah, by the '85 came around, we had a platinum album and and uh, songs on MTV. Like you know, we were. We thought we were on top of the world, and, and of course Sam said, "And next year's going to be even better than that." You know? So, but then he goes, "Oh, but I got this offer; I can't refuse." But he said, "You know, look, uh, you guys are such a great band. Just get some other singer and plug him in, and you know, you're off to go." So, uh, Geffen Records was our label, and they told us about Robert Berry. Uh, but again, I I got the call from Tom Scholz, and I you know joined Boston and did the, again, Third Stage album and that tour. And then after that tour, Tom came to us and said, you know, it's gonna take a few years to make the next Boston album. So if anybody has any you know, other projects you wanna do, 
now's the time, you know. <laughs> so I called up Dave Lauser and Alan Fitzgerald, who, again, been in Sammy's band with us, and uh, I said, hey, you guys want to do something? And, and Dave said, yeah, look, I met this guy named Robert Berry, you know, through Geffen Records. Uh, let's try him out. I think this may work. So we actually got together in Sammy's home studio, and we showed him some song ideas that we had, and he had some ideas, and it just clicked. Robert, as you know, is such a nice guy and terrific musician, so it, it just worked right away. Amazing how the music business sort of sort of paves your path uh, and how it, how that works. I think that's just fascinating, and it's unbelievable to think about. And, you know, it's funny because I just saw Sammy in the Circle a couple weeks ago in St. Louis, um, yeah. and I, it just blows me away um, for Sammy, who's, who's on the plus side of 70 now, and that doesn't act or look a day over 42, and yeah. still that performance level. I mean, do you have the foresight when you're when you're touring with someone like that? You know what kind of charisma he had. You know what kind of energy that you guys had as a band. But to think about, oh, gosh, it'll be crazy because Sammy at 71 will still be every bit as good as he is here at 35. I mean, is that is can you even fathom that at the time? And is, and is it crazy now to, to just kind of look at where he's at still? Uh, yeah, absolutely. If if somebody would have come to me and when I was 16 and said, look, you're going to be playing guitar in a band after you're 60, I would have said, no way. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you, just, you just couldn't imagine that back then. But uh, And again, we've seen plenty of uh, bands and singers and all that that you think are so good. And that, you know, as Andy Warhol said, sometimes you only get 15 minutes worth of fame. <laughs> so, right. But, uh, so, yeah, so, but Sammy's one of those guys, as you say, you know, got the charisma and the energy, you know, why quit now? <laughs> Absolutely, and that kind of goes to show, and I think that, you know, as, as definitely an example being how Boston's popularity is still is so in demand and these these big tours and i've caught you guys here in kansas city at uh, at our starlight theater a couple summers oh, yeah. here in the last few years doesn't it at this point whenever you have uh, like you said so many bands that have had to, to to quit for whatever reason members pass away you know as boston has but to, it becomes at this point so much so about keeping this music alive and keeping the fabric that by, that ties these bands to these fans alive and that's really what it's about at this point is it not Absolutely. You know, people ask me, uh, gee, do you get tired of playing the old songs? And I say, well, I would if I just had to sit in my living room and play them. But, you know, you get up on stage, you look out in the audience, and people are smiling and singing along word for word with all those songs. And, man, I'll tell you, I get choked up sometimes. It's just the best feeling in the world. It is. There's something about that, especially that music from that time and uh, you know, from Sammy's solo stuff that you still hear and play live to to these Boston songs. When you just hear a, a, a riff, you hear you know the, the chorus to more than a feeling. You hear these songs; it just it just strikes a chord with people. And that I could see that something that I've always been jealous of. There's a reason why musicians like you, Gary, are on your side. I'm on my side because I can't play. I can only talk about it and enjoy it. You're the guys that get to go up there and really feel what the fans feel. And I think that's an, an integral part of music is feeling and seeing what the fans experience when you play their favorite song. That's got to be an emotional high. Absolutely. And again, that's something that brings us all together. You know, music is the common language. No matter what language you speak, you know, yeah, you look out in the audience, no matter what country we've played in, uh, people are loving the music. And uh, that's, again, that's such a wonderful thing. Well, I think people are really digging this uh, this new Alliance album. And again, it comes out June 14th. You can pre-order right now on Amazon. I got to ask you about this because the cover 
is awe-inspiring. I love this cover. Um, I don't know how much you personally have to do with the kind of the graphics desi design of these things. Where did this cover come from? Because, it, I mean, it, it's really popping and it's something that, you know, it's still important to me. I like covers. I used to buy albums based on album covers. This one's awesome. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah. Actually, Escape Records uh, has an artist that did that. Uh, actually, Robert made a few suggestions along the way, but Robert will be the first one to say, I'm not an artist. <laughs> uh, but uh, this, this guy had some great ideas and uh, refined it uh, a few times there for us. And yeah, a couple of people said that here to me. It's like, wow, I, I, I just did the cover, you know? <laughs> so great, thanks. It's awesome. Do, do you do you have a favorite song on the album? I mean, there's 13 songs, which I think is, is uh, important right there because... Yeah, a lot in the parlance of today's times, um, album recording is much different, of course, than it was in the '70s and '80s. But to have most most albums are, are are ten songs maximum. There's thirteen on this one. Um, do you have a favorite song or anything that stands out to you so far? I really like "Time," right now, and "The Real Thing." Those are ones that are really stuck out to me. But um, I like a lot of them. So yeah, those are great. Um, you know, the uh, did I mention how we wrote "Fire and Grace," the title track? No. Uh, that, uh, uh, again, we went to Robert's studio, and that's one thing about this band is that we don't want to just send tracks back and forth, because you can do that these days, you know, send email of here's my guitar part, here's the drum part, and send them back and forth. No, we will all want to be in the studio at the same time, turn up the amps, be, you know, be looking at each other so that we can just play together. So, uh, again, I had the guitar idea, Robert had some lyrics, Dave had the groove. We just started playing it, and that's what happened, you know. So uh, that was Fire and Grace. The, uh, but so some of the other songs that uh, I like a lot on there, besides that one, is uh, Dave's song that he wrote called Good Life. And uh, yeah, Time and Uncertain, uh, those are some great songs as well. But, uh, I like the first song, The, the Wheel is Turning. And again, we, a lot of the lyrics here, in fact, I think most of them, all have a positive message. And these days it's, you know, there's so much negativity in the world. It's great to have an album that just feels good and has a positive message to it. That is a, a key component, and I love that in music, and I love that in this album. Uh, Gary, congratulations on this. I'm so happy that you guys have been able to, to put this together. Um, you can go to your website. Uh, it is GaryPeel.com. That's P-I-H-L. And you can get all the information on you, what you're up to, um, your tour, and all the stuff that's going to be coming up uh, for, for your tour dates uh, with Boston and, and everything else that you're going to have coming up here uh, on Into the Future. Gary, we cannot thank you enough for, for joining us and talking about this. Best of luck with this album. And we hope to catch you guys uh, at a live show one of these days here coming up soon, maybe this summer or on Into the Future. Yes, I, I'd love to. And uh, if you can make it the show, come on down so I can meet you and shake your hand in person. Uh, always love to do it. I, t I, t I told Robert the same thing. So we got to make this happen. I got I got two buddies now on the same band. So I got to come. I got to come see some Alliance, man. You guys are great. Uh, the album is great. We definitely, we'll do it, Gary. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll catch you soon, my friend. Thank you, Clint. Talk to you later. You bet. Thanks. Bye. There you have it from Gary Peel. Thanks so much for joining us. A big thanks to both of our guests, uh, Gary Peel and, of course, Neil Ratner, the Rock Doc. What a show it's been here on the Music Mania podcast. We appreciate it so much. Uh, all the feedback, everything that you guys do for us uh, as far as listening, subscribing, and giving us feedback, we appreciate it. Uh, be sure to go to the website, musicmaniapodcast.com. That's where you can get an archive of all of our shows. I think we're at 133 now. Crazy stuff. And uh, all the reviews, every concert I go to, a review for that. So you can catch all my concert reviews, musicmaniapodcast.com, all the uh, news and rock and roll gossip. It's all there. So please visit our website. Again, 
give us a hit us again hit the subscribe button on uh, Google Play Music on Apple Podcasts or Spotify you can get this show for free every single week that's what we love to do that's what it's all about for us you guys already know the songs on this show we tell you the stories and we're going to continue doing that all summer long right here on the Music Mania Podcast <laughs>